Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 195 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I'm coming to you today from Austin, Texas. Excited about this episode as I build towards the big number 200, which is a big milestone in the podcast world. And so I've got a little bit of intro for you today. And then our main topic is I'm going to be discussing in a two-part conversation with Jason Brooks, who is my co-coach for the Base Training Podcast Group. I'll be talking with him about dealing with doubts and fears going into a big goal attempt. And the backdrop of that is a big goal that he was going after. And so I'll actually talk to him in the context of that attempt, both before and after, and then of course provide practical tips and takeaways for you to deal with your own doubts and fears as well as for you to deal with processing the outcome of a goal achieved or not. And so really fascinating conversation and I think it provides a really practical backdrop to the discussion because it comes really in the middle of his own attempt to go do something big in his own life. So we'll get to that in a second. I've got a couple of intro items for you. Three, actually. First, just wanted to say that as I approach episode 200, I've been thinking about how to celebrate that milestone. And I think what I want to do is highlight listeners and really highlight listeners because obviously I wouldn't be at this point without all of you who have tuned in over the years. And now I think I started this in December of 2016. And now we're going, you know, be four years in December of more or less weekly episodes. So been doing this for a while. want to celebrate that and I can think of no better way than profiling and getting some conversation going with some of you, our diehard listeners. And so I've got an invitation. So I want to get at least a couple of you. For those of you that are diehard listeners and who have listened to every single episode to this point, then I want to invite you on the show. So please send me an email, chris at roguerunning.com, if that's you. Give me your favorite episode and why, as well as why you'd like to come on episode 200. And I'll pick a couple of folks and then feature you on that episode 200, which will be coming up here in just over a month. So again, email me, chris at roguerunning.com, if you're one of those diehard listeners and give me your favorite episode as well as why you'd like to be on episode 200. I'll pick a couple of folks and we'll feature and profile and celebrate our listeners on that episode. And I would say also, if you have any stories to share beyond that, for those that may have only listened to a few episodes or you know, 50 episodes, then I would love to hear some stories about how the podcast has influenced or affected your life and your running life particularly so that I can share some of those stories and give some shout outs on the episode as well. So email me chris at roguerunning.com if you'd like to be on that episode or contribute to that episode in some way. I would love to hear from you guys so I can celebrate your stories as a part of that big milestone for me. All right, so that's a quick request and then a couple of current events to talk about. First of all, we've got what looks to be our first and maybe only marathon happening this fall, at least an elite marathon happening this fall. London has announced that they will have an elite only race on a closed course in London with a small elite field so that they can keep things safe and a 
appropriately managed given all of the COVID challenges. And so they're going to be putting together that race on October 4th of this year with, they already have four elite athletes announced for that. You've got Kipchoge versus Bekele on the men's side and Bridget Kosgai, world record holder versus Manuela Schar, the Swiss athlete on the women's side. And I'm sure they'll be filling in those fields with other elites over the coming weeks as we figure out exactly how this one's going to play out. But we've got an elite race happening, London, October 4th, coming up in just under two months. And that's that's pretty exciting. They're going to be doing it on a closed course on a loop within St. James Park, which allegedly was a loop that Kachoge considered for his breaking two attempt. So it's guaranteed to be on a flat and fast course, loop course. So it'll be fun for the the fans to see, although they're going to be spectator-less in that bubble inside the park. They'll, it'll be easy for them to get good coverage on a live stream or something like that. So it'll be fun to watch that. You've got Kipchoge versus Bekele, who... You know, we have all want that head-to-head. We have, we've never really had the head-to-head play out in a way between those two that, you know, is a nail-biter. So hopefully we'll get the best from those two athletes on this day. Although Joss Hermans, who is agent to both of them, has said that their training, both of them, has been affected, obviously, because of the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see what we get from those two athletes. Although, if I'm a betting man, and I am, then I would bet on Kipchoge being absolutely ready. I would I would bet on Bekele not quite being ready, and I think this will be another victory for Kipchoge if, if I were to make my early predictions. And then on the women's side, we'll see. They'll obviously fill out that field. Bridget Koskai is the world record holder from Chicago from last year where she blew away that field. They're going to need some heavy hitters to give her a run for her, for her money, but... I would look for athletes like Ruth Chepengedich and Mary Katani, for example, Vivian Churyat, to potentially be added to that field to give to give her some real competition. So we will see how this these fields come together, but it's exciting to see, and it looks like London will have a monopoly on elite racing this fall, potentially, as the only major to seem to be able to pull off an elite-only race. The other thing that London did, which I think is smart, is they went ahead and announced that the 2021 Citizens Race is going to be postponed to the fall as well. So that's been pushed from what is typically April to October 3rd of 2021. So they're thinking ahead. And instead of having uncertainty about the spring, they're going to push things to the fall where theoretically there should be no issues by that point. So London 2021 has already been postponed and is the first major to postpone their spring race to the fall of next year in order to address any potential uncertainty associated with that spring time period. So I think that was a smart move on their part, allows them to plan, allows athletes to plan, because I think it's pretty good certainty that that will happen next fall. So that's London. And one of the speculation, there has been speculation that has started about what potential Americans may be in this London field. And one of the names mentioned is Sarah Hull, 
who has said that she wants to do a full marathon, even if she has to do her own virtual time trial. And she was out there racing this past weekend in Eugene in a small, very small, looks like about five or six people showed up in a race that was put on just for Sarah Hole by the Eugene Marathon crew on the Prefontaine bike path where she was able to run a 108.18 to earn a PR and earn the, the, I believe, sixth fastest, yes, sixth fastest time ever by an American female over the half marathon distance. She was paced by a couple of men, including Jared Carson. Got to give a shout out to Jared, who is actually a former employee of Rogues. He was our store manager here in, in Cedar Park for a little while before moving on to the Pacific Northwest, Northwest, where he now works for Nike and trains with the Bowerman Track Club sub-elite, uh, sub-elite group out there. And he was at the Olympic Trials Marathon this past February. So shout out to Jared for doing an amazing job pacing Sarah. I believe he was with her through about mile nine, as well as a co-pacer, Eric Finan who both kind of came through together and then uh, Jared dropped off. I think Eric Finan was able to stay a little bit longer till very close to the finish and they were able to escort Sarah to that PR. Again, 108.18, a 40-second PR and the sixth fastest time ever by an American woman over that distance. There were five total finishers for the day, including, and I believe that was needed for to make this eligible for official times but included the the field included two of sarah's daughters hannah and mia ages 20 and 16 who ran 120 and 123 respectively to put together pretty impressive races themselves so congrats to sarah impressive that she was able to put together that time but type of fitness training during this crazy time and also kudos to the Eugene Marathon team for finding a way to get this done for her. I think that's that's it's cool. It's cool to see that both races as well as elites are getting creative about rep about getting out there and figuring out ways to still get the work done as well as to show results during this time of complete uncertainty. Again, Sarah has said she wants to leverage this fitness to do some sort of full marathon we don't know what that's going to be officially yet she has said that she will virtually time trial or or do one with pacers like she just did if needed but perhaps she could end up in that london field on a fast course in st james park and so that would be fun to see her be able to to mix it up with the best in the world in that london event on october 4th so no announcement yet there. That's all speculation, but we will see what happens with Sarah and hopefully, fingers crossed, she can get into that London field because I think that would be amazing for her, especially after the disappointment she had at the Olympic trials. So there you go. That's uh, our intro with a little bit of current events. Exciting to have a marathon on the calendar with some big races that we can cheer for and watch coming up on October 4th. So kudos also to London for making that happen for us. All right. That's my intro. 
as I said, we're going to be talking about dealing with doubts and fears. And again, this is a two-part conversation. I'm going to start with the first part of the conversation where I talked to Jason in advance of this big attempt. And his goal was to run what's called Nolan's 14, which is a challenge, an official challenge, but I think there's an official finisher list somewhere of being able to run 14, 14,000 foot peaks in 60 hours all in one attempt in Colorado. So 14, 14,000 foot peaks all within two and a half days. And so Jason's had this goal for a little while to go and attempt Nolan's 14. And so I talked to, to him in advance of that and helped him think through dealing with the doubts and fears going into the attempt. And then we also talked to him. And so that'll be my first conversation. And then we also talked to him after the attempt. And we'll save the outcome for later of the in this conversation. But we talked to him after the attempt and how he dealt with and processed some of those doubts and fears during the attempt itself. And then, of course, now how he's thinking about the outcome of this attempt, which we'll get to in the second part of this conversation. So again, we'll start with my conversation in advance where we talk about him dealing with his doubts and fears going in. And then, of course, provide some practical takeaways for ways that you can also deal with potential doubts and fears in your own running. And then I'll come back on and we'll tee up the conversation about the aftermath. So here we go with Jason before his attempt at Nolan's 14. Part of the way we're going to talk about this is by getting really tangible with a big goal that you have in front of you. We've mentioned this big challenge that you're facing. I'm not sure if it was last episode or two episodes ago, but you're now on the precipice of going to do it. First of all, remind us what you're doing over the next few days. So I'm going to attempt Nolan's 14, excuse me, which is a maybe 60% trail, 40% cross-country journey through the Sawatch Range in central Colorado. So if you're familiar at all with Colorado, it basically stretches from Leadville, Colorado to Salida, Colorado. And it's anywhere, depending on how you navigate the route, 88 to like 103 miles, uh, over 14,000 foot peaks. And so you have 60 hours to complete it. It's 44,000 feet of elevation gain, and it is largely in remote wilderness areas. So uh, I haven't, uh, (laughs) it's a huge endeavor. It's huge. um, It's terribly frightening. And uh, for me, it is, it has forced me to explore some, maybe like subconscious routines I've been playing out. I haven't competed a lot over the last probably three or four years. And I tend uh, to only dip my toes in the water of competition or big goals and challenges when I feel like I can really accomplish what I'm setting out to do. But I think that I've probably also been hedging and uh, have been sort of dodging the fear of failure so I haven't had a lot of failures uh, as an ultra runner. And so I think, <laughs> I think that I've been too timid uh, 
over the past few years, and I caught myself in the lead up to Nolan's 14 in this practice, I think more starkly than in any previous scenario. And I've, I've found myself over the past three weeks or so making a lot of excuses for why it's not a good idea, why I'm not prepared or ready. And it's forced me to have some hard conversations with, with myself and with my wife, Mallory, who does a lot of work to support me and, and coach me through these adventures. And, um, and so it made me think about goal setting and how, how we, how we go about setting goals and what kind of things might be happening inside of us that lead us to hedge against goals that we're possibly capable of, um, or clouds our ability to set goals that, um, force us outside of our comfort zone. So I thought it would be an interesting conversation uh, for us to have. Yeah. So first of all, where did this idea come to you to do this challenge? Steve Sisson was the first one to bring it up about, I guess it was four years ago when Steve and Ruth had just uh, purchased and were working on developing camp elevation. And so we uh, started coming up first in the spring and then the summer over the past four years. And um, camp elevation is in Buena Vista, Colorado, which is in the heart of the Arkansas River Valley, right in the middle of the Nolan's 14 route. And, uh, and so being here, they knew about it. I had never heard about it. And I thought, wow, that sounds that sounds totally outside of my comfort zone. That's something that I should think about doing. And I've been scouting it and making up scouting as an excuse maybe over the last four years. Um, Save for last year where we got tons of snow up here and you couldn't really get in the high parts of the country, but um, I've been scouting it again this year. So lots of scouting on it, lots of thinking about it, mulling over it, trying to figure out like what's the right time. What's your biggest fear in facing this challenge? Not being able to do it. Why? I don't know. Well, that, so that competes with a couple of fears, I guess. There's also like the fear of serious injury in a remote wilderness area. That's kind of terrifying. (laughs) Um, That's a legitimate fear. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I just have to deal with and be safe about. Um, There is the element of taking on an adventure that spans two and a half days. So 24 hours is the longest I've pushed. And I know that during that overnight section of the Wonderland Trail last year, when I was forced to problem solve, it was an abysmal failure. Um, I did not have the cognitive capacity and function to solve really simple problems. And it led me to getting lost for an hour, running around the, the roads of Mount Rainier National Park, which is nowhere I ever should have been. Um, so... Uh, you know, I guess I think about any, some of these elements may contribute to not being able to complete it. And then some I think are just fears of what is it going to be like to have this experience? I'm lurching into the unknown. And I think that's always scary for us in the human condition. But can we back up? I mean, yeah. But, so why, why are you doing this? Like what's... <laughs> 
I, I, I skipped that question. What, what's the point for you? The point for me uh, is to, I, I guess it's to do something that is really frightening for me. That's truly outside of my comfort zone that I feel like isn't possible. Um, and so I'm running away from the very thing I'm running toward, I guess, right? This it seems like an oxymoron in a way. Um, so I want, you know, I want to take on that kind of a challenge and to try to solve that sort of a problem. Uh, but at the same time, I'm terrified of it. So, so you're afraid not to do it or not to be able to do it. And if that happens, who who are you letting down? Nobody. But you are letting down yourself, I guess. In a I, yeah. I mean, and so that becomes a matter of perspective. And I think that I've been able to shift, shift my perspective on that throughout this process. Um, you know, so we talked a little bit about this idea of controllable and uncontrollable variables in our first lesson on mental skills. And I followed up in the uh, final search forum about the circle of control that they talk about in Stoic philosophy. And so I had to, I, I used in conjunction with Mallory's help, this framework that an adaptation to a framework that Tim Ferriss put out called fear setting. And so it's like, take, this thing you're fear you're afraid of. So for me, it'd be failing to complete Nolan's 14 and sort of write out what it is, right? So there may be multiple parts that contribute to the fear. So for me, it's um, like, this is a massive undertaking. It's hard to wrap my head around. I haven't uh, been up for two days or much less two and a half days in a really long time since the military, but I've put a lot of time and comfort between myself and my Marine Corps days. Um, and then, you know, there's the possibility of getting hurt, getting lost, right? And right, take those sort of defined fear points and then think about a preventative measure for each one. Uh, and then think about how I could overcome or solve the problem for any one of those things that might rise, even if a preventative measure doesn't help. Um, and so I have done a lot of scouting on the route. I have GPS files that I can use for navigation, for figuring out roughly how long it'll take me to travel through certain sections. I fortunately have crew. so. I've been able to break it down into segments, days, and then parts of days. And I'm planning for sleep so that I can hopefully prevent sort of the cognitive decline that might lead me to get lost or hurt in the wilderness. And um, I have a detailed nutrition plan and hydration plan laid out where I can source water, how much I need to get at certain times, how many calories I have to carry and try to eat uh, so that 
I have the comfort of knowing like I have, I have a plan. I can wrap my head around this. I can start to understand it. It's broken down into sizable chunks. And, and that's, that has helped. But then the, the thing about sort of shifting perspective that got real on it is it is an attempt at something that is a monumental undertaking. And if I fail at it, that's okay. It's a great opportunity to learn. And, and every failure, every defeat, there is a valuable lesson. And the worst case for me then is that this becomes a learning opportunity that I can roll into the next time that I attempt it if I fail. But if I, if I don't approach it because of a fear of failure, I may never approach it. I, I may never be able to convince myself all oh, the time is right now. <clears throat> and maybe I only think that the time is not right now because I'm afraid of it. And so I need to sort of confront that fear, plan for all the t- contingencies I can, think about how I problem solve if any contingent, if any sort of contingent problem becomes a reality, uh, and then embrace the failure as an opportunity to learn. Is there a piece of this? I mean, I don't know. I think about like I think about that goal. Like if I thought, oh, if somebody told me about <laughs> somebody told me about Nolan's fourteen, and you're you were the first person to tell me about it. And my thought process honestly was as it related to myself was there's no way I could ever do that. Like I am not physically capable of doing that. That was my first thought about it. (laughs) So, so I would imagine for you and I get what you're saying about kind of dealing with, because there's sort of rational fear and then there's irrational fear. Right. The rational fear, you know, the fear of getting injured, the fear of getting lost, like those are rational fears. Like those things could happen. And you're dealing with the rational fear by preparing, by planning, by doing everything you can to try to minimize risk. And that's how you have to handle, I think, rational fear. But there's this other part of it, which is sort of getting to the point I just made, which is that is there, and maybe it's rational, maybe it's irrational, I don't know, but there is there a fear that you're just not going to be capable of doing it regardless of how many times you try. Like you're not, like you're just not good enough, Jason, to do this. Is that a fear? It is. Yeah. That my body isn't capable of it. My mind's not capable of it, that I'll just tuck tail and run as soon as it gets really difficult. And so there's, right, I think we always face that fear of, you know, I'm going to get deep inside my mind and I'm not going to like what I find. I'm going to find out that I don't have the courage, the fortitude, the strength to do this. And so I think as much as we all want to go out and explore our boundaries, there are times when we, we also don't really want to know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the scary part. Cause what if you find, what if you find that edge and you don't like what you see? That's basically right. what we're getting to. Yeah that you quit yeah. or, or you're not strong enough. And that's, that's the tricky stuff to me. I mean, um, and that's where, you know, I think about, I think about, and this is not even close to, a, you know, the same kind of challenge, but you know, when I, when I, when I did my, I did a 40 K last summer in Europe before I did the 50 miler 
and it had, I think, 9,000 elevation gain up and down in 25 miles. So nothing near what you're doing, but, but not too far off really in this, you know, in the same kind of elevation change per mile. And I remember going into it being afraid, not necessarily that I couldn't do it, but being afraid that that I would kind of wilt under the things I knew would be really hard for me, particularly steep descents, <laughs> which I was going to face in that race. And while I wasn't very good at them, the way I prepared to deal with that was by having a mantra, by giving myself something to focus on in those moments where I wanted to either quit, slow down, or focus instead of on my weaknesses versus just getting it done. And so for that race in particular, my mantra was something I stole from Paul Terranova, which is, you know, the best way out is always through. And so it was just like, there's only one way to do this. And that's to just go the way I, you know, have to go as a part of this race, just go through it. And so I just focused on, you know, one step at a time with that as a mantra, trying to dissociate from those doubts, essentially. So what are your tactics to deal with that fear of the unknown at the edge of your limits? Well, I think one of the big ones is to accept the fact that a lot of it is out of my control. I mean, this is something where, you know, over two and a half days of energy output on little sleep, eating a lot of trail food, uh, a lot of different things could go wrong from gastrointestinal distress to an accident, a fall, um, getting, getting disoriented and lost, um, that I need, I need to just be present in the experience and embrace the fact that the only thing I can really control is my perception of the situation and my, my perspective on it all. And so one foot at a time with a positive mental attitude uh, is how I've been trying to frame it. I think the mantra of the, the only way out is through is perfect. It kind of encapsulates where I've been in my head with this. So I may borrow that as my mantra, which will be mm -hmm. particularly appropriate when I'm in some of the segments of this trek where it's 30 miles before I can, before I can see people without making some kind of hard right exit from the wilderness to the highway and then trying to like scavenge for a way to contact people. <laughs> right. Um, and so if I kind of, if I press through and work on persevering and taking it one piece at a time, then that's the, that's kind of my go-to it's having it, having something like this broken into segments helps us focus on little parts of it at a time. We talked about this with like quality workouts, right? Don't focus on, the end of it, the 11th set of the fartlek, but rather just the one right in front of you. Can I get through this one? I'll deal with the next one. Um, and so for me, it'll be a peak at a time, <laughs> I yeah. suppose. Uh, and just uh, staying on that 
positive forward message where I focus on what I can't control. And that's my perspective. Yeah. The, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be cool, but the, yeah, the, the laser focus on the next step, you know, I think that's always a good reminder too, which is that it's often, it's easy in these moments when we're tackling something big to focus on the things that we don't know if we can do them or we don't know we can accomplish, or maybe we are concerned that we can't accomplish them. It's easy to focus on those things versus focusing on the things you know you can do. Right. You know, so the analogy I use in a marathon, if somebody's facing down a big goal of trying to get a PR is, you know, you, you don't know yet walking into that race, whether you can run 26.2 miles at that target pace of yours. You don't know because you haven't done it yet. But you do know that you can run one mile at that pace and you do know you can run two miles at that pace. So go out and do that and then deal with deal with the next two miles when they come. And so I think the same thing is true here where it's like, you know, you know, you don't know if you can do all 14 innings in 60 hours, but you do know you can do one peak and, you know, focus there and get it done and check it off, get it behind you and then keep going. Uh, you probably even know you can do two. I would imagine you've done that before. So it's like you, you have to focus on what you know you can accomplish because otherwise you'll be overwhelmed by the unknowns. Yeah, exactly. We can get totally caught up in a negative headspace with a f- focus on the things that we can't control, what we don't think is possible for us to do. And it creates a sort of symbiotic relationship between your emotions and your thoughts and how those feed on each other. And you have to break the cycle by letting go of your attachment to those negative thoughts that, and which usually revolve around these uncontrollable variables in a situation. Let go of them and see what happens. And that's what I'm trying to do. Right. I love it. Exactly. Like you said, I don't (laughs) know if I can do this until I try it. And this, I think, is just like the next level of me confronting that that unknown. You know, I, I figured like the first time I ran 100K, 125K, you know, that's that seems pretty doable. But two and a half days is like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. it's a big it's a big deal. But we we shouldn't talk about the magnitude of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, your, your point about planning is key. I always tell people in getting ready for a big event or a big challenge, you know, I often have think about two different categories of strategies. You've got associative strategies and you've got dissociative strategies. Associative yeah. strategies are those strategies that allow you to associate with the act. And for me, what that typically looks like is instead of lingering on doubts, anxieties, fears, refocusing that energy towards the things I can do and control, which is digging into the planning, just like you're talking about, you know, studying the maps more, figuring out that nutrition and hydration strategy, coordinating your, your aid stations or your, your time with your crew in your case. And, or in the case of a road race, you know, planning your, your dinner the night before, figuring out where you're going to park if you're racing locally, you know, get into the details of planning. And instead of lingering on those anxieties and fears and, and doubts that pop into your head, just 
channel that energy into things you can, can do and control to help you prepare for that moment. And that works sometimes. If, sometimes it doesn't work though. And sometimes that can perhaps send you into a further spiral, in which case sometimes it's good to dissociate from those doubts, anxieties, and fears and do something that's going to take your mind off of things. And in, in the case of a marathon, that could be watching a movie, maybe binging on some Netflix. That could mean doing, you know, hanging out with friends, something that's going to take your mind off of it so that you don't allow that stuff to overwhelm you. And I would imagine you've been doing a fair bit of both of those things over the last few weeks as you prep for this. Indeed. But the, but the messages, I mean, and the thing I think that's interesting about all of this is that a lot of people might listen to this and they would hear what you're trying to accomplish and they would think, well, this, none of this stuff is relevant to me because I would never tackle a challenge that's that epic and that big. And maybe you will, maybe you won't. But the point that matters is that the strategies are the same. They can be used in exactly the same ways, regardless of the size of the challenge that you face. You know, we talked about digging into planning, being really practical about addressing each of those fears. We talked about having a mantra to kind of focus your energy when you need to. We talked about dissociative and, and associative strategies. And, you know, the other thing I'll remind people as maybe a final tip here is you also want to use the time in advance of an effort like this to reconnect with your why, you know? And so for you over the next, what you got, how long, how long before you take off on this effort? Uh, 16 hours. <laughs> so tomorrow. So yeah, 16 hours away is to re yeah. is to really reconnect with why you're doing it as a part of it. We talked about last time in the mental training to really know your why. And if you know your why and it means something to you, then that can be something you can also bring out to help silence those doubts is to really just focus on the reason you're doing it. And then of course, you know, the last thing to do is remember that that the pathway to success is through failure. You know, there's yes. the famous quotes about failure, which is like the best way to succeed is to fail more. And that is absolutely true. And every time you, you give it a go and you fail, you learn something that will allow you to succeed the next time. And, and that's where the good stuff is really, you know, is in the lessons that you learn from not quite getting it done and then you come back stronger or you prepare better and or you have more tools in the toolkit for your next challenge, whatever it might be. So those are some things to, uh, to digest and think about. All right. So that's the preamble to the conversation before Jason went out for the big goal of accomplishing Nolden's 14. And now we'll go to the aftermath. We'll talk about the outcome and then how he's processing it since then. I think fascinating to put these two things together in context to help you deal with not only doubts and fears going in, but also how to deal with outcomes when they come. So here we go on the aftermath with Jason Brooks. So we've got a lot to talk about, about your journey last week. Yeah. You know, the day after we chatted, you went out for this epic 
goal to try to run Nolan's 14, run hike Nolan's 14, which is yeah. 14, 14,000 foot peaks in 60 hours. And I think you made it about what, 20, 22 hours? 13. 13. Well, so 13 hours of actual work. And then I slept on it for a little while. So I didn't turn. I probably didn't turn my watch off until twenty some hours in. Got it. And hit four, four peaks, four fourteen thousand foot peaks during that time. Yeah. Actually, relatively quickly, I would say. You were moving really well early on. It so it seemed from the tracker, but you didn't get it done. You faced failure. Yeah. How are you feeling about it? I feel good about it. I, I think. The big takeaway for me is that I'm just not ready for it physically uh, or mentally. There's a lot of preparation work. It's you know I knew I had the feeling like I like I wasn't ready for it, like I underestimating the challenge, and it became really clear early on. Well, not necessarily early on, but, you know, by the time I came off of Mount Princeton, which was the fourth 14er for the day, which took almost as long as the first three, um, that I, I need to, one, spend more time doing that kind of work, getting up and into that alpine environment, traveling across multiple 14ers in a day, so... Prior to that day, three in a day was the most I had done. So I need to bite off like seven in a day um, at least, like half of that course in one day. Mm-hmm. But I also need to get eyes on the parts of it that I haven't seen. Uh, I, I know one thing that I realized on Wednesday was that the weekend before I had traveled, I had traversed the first three peaks of the route and, and then going back through them the second day, it was much better. Like I, I could find the lines a lot easier. I didn't have to spend a lot of time navigating and worrying about uh, whether or not I was on course and constantly checking um, my GPS track. And I could just, I, I was able to learn from the previous attempt, the previous like trek through those mountains, a cleaner lines that were safer. And I think I, I expressed concern about dying and a rock slide that I create on my own. And I was able to find ways to avoid the really loose rocks on the terrain. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, I picked up with some guys that were running it while I was out there and they showed me a really good line coming off of Princeton, which probably, uh, saved me a lot of heartache <laughs> and misery. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, I think one, physically, I need to prepare a lot more. And then to help with the psychological fear of that endeavor, I need to spend more time familiarizing with the route. I need to, to really lay eyes on all parts of it because so much of it deviates from the trail. And, and really being able to find a safe routes down the mountains that I can consistently follow will be key. And I feel like once I've put it all together and I can really visualize 
the whole course and my mind, I'll, I'll feel more comfortable with it, um, especially covering parts of it at night. And so it was an awesome day in the mountains. I felt good all day. Uh, it, Mount Princeton, which is not necessarily people's favorite 14er out here, wind traveled the way I went across it, which was traversing the entire ridge of the mountain, which took almost four hours alone above treeline, was absolutely beautiful. It was my favorite climb I've done out here so far. And um, I, I did have, I've been having some trouble all summer with the outside of my left knee, which I think that's a little bit of a hangover from the Wonderland Trail last year. And it started bothering me as I was coming down Mount Princeton uh, on the steep sort of gully descent. And so I let myself play that up a little bit too much, probably kind of got a fear of, oh, if I, the second day is a 20 hour commitment with no crew uh, entirely contained within the Collegiate Peaks Wilderness. So it's really remote. It's seven 14ers that you have to get across. And I just thought, I don't want to get stuck in the middle of that and have a lot of pain and, and have to kind of like walk out and then figure figure out the logistics of reconnecting with my crew and that sort of thing. And so I hung it up for the day, took it as a victory that I got through four 14ers um, in 13 hours. And uh, I learned a lot about about the route. And I feel like I really have a, a clear understanding of what I need to do to get it done in the future. And I came away feeling more resolved about the challenge than, than I think I was going into it. So I feel good about that as well. Mm. Well, that's huge. What did you feel when... How are you feeling at 13 hours in? Um, I was feeling, I felt like, I, I felt a little foolish, I guess, for committing to it all when I, I really deep down knew that it wasn't the right time for it. And I guess it's a, it's a mix. Like my perception constantly shifts on it where I, you know, I think, well, I made an attempt on it, um, but I don't, I don't believe I was really committed to it going into it. And so I, I feel like I should have just taken it as an opportunity to bite off a big chunk of the route and continue my scouting on it. Um, and so there was just some internal struggle like that, like, that I, I make the right decision? Did I not make the right decision? Since I committed to doing this, should I keep going and try until I totally fail out? Or should I play it safe and walk away from it, call it a victory, come back and do some more work on it? And I think that was the biggest thing playing out in my head then. So... Why not sleep a little bit and then go get more scouting gun done the next day? Keep pressing, knowing that maybe you're not going to get it all done in the 60 hours, but you to be able to at least get a little bit more in. Yeah. I don't know. It didn't seem worth it. It seemed, you know, I have this problem where uh, I can string, like every year I can string together 
a decent training block that's about six to nine months of healthy running. And then I do, I take on some kind of big challenge and then I end up somewhat injured for three months or so afterwards. And I, I really didn't want the downtime this year. So I'm trying to look out into the future on this and think about how I can put together more than nine months of consistent training. And so I got back to it in October of last year after the Wonderland Trail. And if I could put together a year and a half or a little bit more of training before I come out here to work on Nolan's 14 again, then I feel like I'll be much fitter, healthier, more confident. I have, I'll have time to work things out with my body while also continuing to run and train. And right now I, I would prefer to focus more on the consistency. I also know that I didn't train much while we were on our road trip. So I had, I was going into this with with a, a month of running 20 to 25 miles a week on average and didn't do any strength training during that time. So I was already in kind of a funky spot. And it just seemed like if I kept pushing it, then I might end up in a worse spot than I really want to be. And I'd rather, I'd rather take the cautious route and be able to continue pressing and look forward to sort of the long game. Live to fight another day. Yeah. The, yeah, I mean, I kind of thinking about this and having, I've never climbed a 14er, but I've done some off trail hiking in Colorado to shorter peaks. Like I've done a fair amount in the like 12, five to 13,000 range. Yeah. Off trail. And so I know what that's like where, you know, once you're off trail, there's, a, there's, you know, infinite number of paths you can choose essentially. And you, you got to find the right line. And so developing that visual picture of what that is, so you're not having to think about it, find it, make sure you're not taking yourself off a cliff at any point is, <laughs> is important. And it kind of makes me think about the Donwall pursuit in some ways where, where uh, Tommy, Tommy Caldwell had to figure out, I mean, obviously you're not a first ascender, like he was trying to be the first one up to Donwall, but in Yosemite, but he had to go through and basically map out every single segment yeah, and figure it out. And or, you know, same with Free Solo and Alex Honnold in terms of his free climbing of of El Cap, the, yeah. Yeah, of El Cap. They're, you know, he's having to do that scouting so that every movement that he's going to make is basically planned. Yeah. And I would think that it would need to be the same in this case when you're off trail and you're just trying to have to optimize your route, not only for time purpose, but is time purposes but also for safety purposes also for energy conservation purposes so that you're not you know reach having to retread work or waste energy going the wrong way or waste energy trying to figure out the right way so and so gosh if i'm just thinking about myself trying to get this challenge like i would want to have that visual picture 
supported by probably notes and all sorts of other stuff that I could use as reminders of, okay, this is what I need to do so that when you get there, you know exactly what to do. Now that's complicated by the night component because I'm not sure how you establish that ability to connect the visual with a dark environment where you can only see as far as a headlamp is concerned, but I'm sure you can kind of develop a feel for it. That's more tactical or. uh, Yeah. 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 Timing and attempt with a full moon will be really important. I also Mm. learned a lot about gear on that one. So I figured out that I needed to take some trail gaiters so that Mm. I wasn't constantly pulling my shoes off to remove dirt. And once this like, sand and all that sort of silt and stuff that comes from all that sort of glacier debris on the sides of the mountains, it gets into the socks and then it just slowly abrades away at the feet and not a big deal for 13 hours, but a really big deal over 60 hours. Um, And so I got a pair of gaiters. The first descent totally destroyed them. The straps that go under the shoes just Mm. chewed up and spit out. Um, I tried a drink mix in my bladder and that, that fueling product had solubility problems. And Mm -hmm. so it was constantly clumping up in the bottom of my bladder and in my bite valve on the bladder tube. And so that became kind of a fail and it was a cornerstone of my nutrition program. I made the fatal error of trying something new for the first time on a big effort. So that was, you know, (laughs) (laughs) hashtag rookie mistake. mistake, And then I snapped one of my trekking poles on the descent off of Princeton and, uh, and like fell multiple times because of it. And I, I kind of like pulled my, uh, pectoral muscle and, sliced my hand open pretty bad and so i'm sure i looked like shit as i rolled into the trailhead at the end of it i'm like bleeding everywhere while i'm holding these broken trekking poles and i've got trail gators like hanging off my shoes i was just like oh man i got i got chewed up today yeah so there was a lot of learning which was great yeah how did the mental side go for you yeah, I mean, I, I felt good. I got a little bit discouraged and I talked myself into a pity party over my knee. And that got better as I continued to run. Like once I came off the descent on Princeton, I had seven miles on the Colorado Trail uh, or like five miles on the Colorado Trail and a couple miles on the road. And by the time I got you know back to the track, I was like, hey, you know, it doesn't really hurt that much. So am I really, is it really a problem? Am I making it up in my head? The next day, my right quad was really sore, and I could tell a lot of that was compensation, trying to stay off my left leg as I was mm. yep. coming down off the mountain and then getting into that first few miles of running on the Colorado Trail. And so, you know, I think I had I had pretty much talked myself out of it. And so I feel like from the mental game standpoint, I I wasn't truly committed going into it. and. That's, I mean, that's a big deal to think about, to have the resolve and the concrete purpose in your mind about where you're going after and, and knowing that you're ready for it. Um, it's important. And I didn't really 
listen to the voice in my head before. You know, I, I think that I convinced myself that it was self-doubt and fear more than the sort of rational check <clears throat> that I'm not prepared, that I haven't done my homework. If you think about like imposter syndrome, it's sort of your brain saying, hey, you need to do your homework so you're ready for this. And for me, I think that was the routine that was playing subconsciously was, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't do all the homework, you know, you don't feel like you're really prepared for it. And so I think that, I think that was, that was probably the the big takeaway for me on that. Hmm. Yeah. It's hard to know the difference between (laughs) irrational fear and doubt versus rational concern over a lack of preparation perhaps yeah i also it's interesting i was reflecting on it as you were out there thinking about some of my own journey and goal setting and thinking about this idea that a lot of the goals the quote-unquote big goals that i put out in front of me in life have been goals that I knew I could achieve in a sense that I knew it would be hard work. I knew it required a certain amount of dedication, commitment, training, whatever it may be to accomplish it, that it wasn't going to be easy, but that it was something that would be possible. Like I had a hundred percent belief in the possibility of achieving that goal. Yeah, And I would say that let me just say this. I couldn't think of a goal in my life that I've had fitness wise where I wasn't sure if I could accomplish it. If I think about the Nolan's 14, if I were to apply that goal to me, which, you know, and I even said it, I think last week is I don't think I could do that. Like I, you know, like I don't think I could do it as I sit here thinking about it now, and if it was something I wanted to do that I would need to shift it in my mind from that category of, I don't think I'm capable of this to the other category, which is I know I'm capable of of this because of all the work I've done to prepare for it. Yeah. And so I would need to move myself into that category. And, you know, as I think about that goal now, I think, I don't know if I could get to that place. I just don't know because it's not something I've ever really tried to grasp. I mean, I've never even done a 14er, but, but, you know, so I would even have to do work to try to even convince myself that I could fully move it into that category of possible for me. Yeah. And so I was thinking about all of that and it made me ultimately ask myself this question should goals be realistic in a sense that, you know, they're going to be hard, you know, they're going to be a stretch, but you know, you can do it. Or should they be things that you're not sure if you can even do it? And I've kind of argued with myself on both sides of that equation. Yeah. And I, and I like that thought exercise because it's easy for us to, hedge and not truly push ourselves outside of our comfort zones by you know convincing ourselves that our goals need to always be completely realistic i think it's 
I think it's within my possibility to complete Nolan's 14 if I do all of the preparation work. But that I still think that this is one where there's no guarantee. It's yeah. not like I I feel like, you know, the first time I tried to run a marathon, I thought I can get through 26 miles. Now, completing a marathon is totally different than trying to run sub three hours or to get under 245 or something like that. Like those become chat like goals that push to the edge of our ability. I can say right now that without doing a lot more work, I can't complete Nolan's 14. <laughs> like it's just not <laughs> like, I, at least I don't have the just innate capability to go out there and power through it. And maybe nobody does. Maybe some folks have been able to go out and do it. You know, this is a space where I think I'm finally, I finally feel like I've found something that's well outside of my comfort zone and pushes me to really like sit down at the drawing board and think, okay, now you really have to work at it. And I, you know, it's, it's a stretch for sure. And I like that part of it, but I think that we should have goals for ourselves that we have to chase for a while that we don't, it doesn't just happen in a training cycle or the first attempt at it. Having something like for you, it's the sub 245 marathon. Uh, for me right now, it's it, it's the three <laughs> the sub three hour marathon or <laughs> Nolan's 14, uh, whatever I might choose to <laughs> to dedicate my time toward. But those, um, those are very I, different categories of things, yeah. by the way. But and I'm just okay. trying to give, you know, like yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a two and a half day endeavor that requires some kind of expedition style thing, right? Like it could be, it can, it doesn't have to be on that scale. The magnitude of it's not important, right? Like we talked about last week. And so, but I think we had, we, we should have something where it's, it's within reach, but it takes a lot of learning and trying to get there and we have to constantly iterate uh, on our approach, on our thinking and really work toward it. And to me, those are the, those are the goals that are the most fun and rewarding. Those are the ones that I feel like aren't as, um, I don't want to say empty, but you know, there have been things where I thought, oh, this is going to be really difficult. I'm afraid of it. And then it comes really easy. And then I think, okay, well, that, you know, what that challenge wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. And so I, let's keep pressing. Yeah. But in some ways, I mean, the, and maybe we're being too philosophical about this, but in some ways it should be not easy, but when you get there, it should be like, okay. <laughs> I'm so prepared that I was able to do this. Yeah. Comfortable, not comfortably, but within my, well, within my ability at the time. Like I yeah. think about the 50 miler I did last August and I knew going into training for the 50 miles, I could run 50 miles. Now the, the element of challenge that I threw in there was, you know, making it the Squamish 50, which is one of the, 
you know, that ha- just has a lot of elevation change. And, and so that part as someone who's not a great descender and who lives in relative to that terrain and who lives in a relatively flat place compared yeah. to that terrain, then I knew it was going to be a challenge for me and that I had to do some very unique and specific work to get ready for it. In addition to just preparing to being out there for 10 to 12 hours. And so I did all of that and I left no stone unturned in training in terms of prep physically, prep nutrition wise, hydration wise, et cetera. Mentally I was ready. That being said, I got to that day and I thought, you know, anything could go wrong. I could fall. I could twist my ankle. Like I might not finish today, but I knew that it was well within my ability to do it on that day. And then ultimately it turned out, you know, I did it relatively comfortably, so to speak, because of the preparation. And so to me, that's generally my goal with these things is you want to be so prepared that it's not a stretch or a miracle by the time you get there. It's just expect it. Right. And for me, the goal is actually sub 240. I have not okay. yet run under under 245, but I've been close. I'm like 245, 30 something is my marathon PR. I, you know, I know I can run under 245. I believe I can run under 240, but it's a step change from where I am now. And I've got a lot of work to do to get there. But it's one of those things where it's just right on the edge of what I think is possible. If I were to tell you, I want to run a 220 marathon, that would just be like, that would be a, an unrealistic pipe dream. Like that is, I don't think within my ability at this point in my life. So if I were to put that out there, that would be a silly goal in my opinion, because it's too much of a stretch. Yeah. But 240 is kind of that right, just as an example for me, is kind of that right amount of of stretch, you know, and and yeah, Project 606, which is something I've got in the back of my head, because that's 606 is the pace required to run sub 240. Okay. That's nice. the, the <laughs> multi-year project. <laughs> that's the multi-year project that I've got in the works to get under that 240 goal. Um, but I do like that idea of having something that you know is challenging, that it's going to require multiple years of work that might require a few failed attempts before yeah. you get there. Like there is a lot of magic in that. And if people want to be inspired about a journey like that, then I would highly encourage you go watch Don Wall, which is a documentary about Tommy Caldwell's first ascent of the Don Wall in Yosemite. Absolutely fascinating. It is I think he's, very I think good. He spent, I think he spent eight years. Yeah, yeah. a long time. And, yeah, and then eventually got it done. But even when he started the final attempt, there were sections he had yet to climb that he had to climb. You know, for the first time to make that all happen, and and the, it's just a cool story too because he brought a friend along with him. He ultimately helped, you know, do it, and they did it together but there's some drama associated with that that's really fascinating yeah he even um, cut his finger off and like retrained himself to climb yeah. in the middle of it all like it's yeah really impressive it's it's a great it's a great documentary i enjoyed the the uh alex honnold free solo documentary i thought that was really fascinating as well but in many ways i like the don wall better 
and the story I think is as rich. The storytelling is as rich. So would highly recommend that if you're wanting to get motivated about hard long-term goals, because it definitely gave me when I watched it a re it reignited my desire to spend time working on this sub 240 goal that I've had floating around in my head since I literally started running. So anyway. Well, I am uh, proud of you for what you did get done. I mean, 14,000 feet is no joke. Four times that in one, you know, 13-hour stretch is amazing. And, you know, let's find another day. You'll get it done at some point. I believe in that. Yeah. So there you go. Jason Brooks, both before and after his failure to complete Nolan's 14 and the lessons associated with that. I think there's a lot to dig into there that hopefully you can apply practically in your own world. And if if you don't take away anything else, then take away this, which is that it's okay to fail. It's okay to do things where you might fail because you're going to learn things that will ultimately allow you to unlock greater achievement down the road. So don't be afraid to tackle big things. Don't be afraid to fail. Learn, adapt, evolve, and keep going because that's how big things are accomplished. So with that, we'll wrap this episode. Again, as a reminder, if you'd like to be a part of episode 200, shoot me an email, chris at roguerunning.com. Otherwise, if you'd like to learn more about Rogue Running, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.